Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In this podcast, you will hear from leading experts who share their highlights from the 2023 EHA meeting. This podcast features Othman Al-Sawaf and Lydia Scafo, who share their updates in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The experts cover several fascinating topics, including the management of double refractory patients, novel BTK inhibitors emerging in CLL, how to sequence these agents, and more. So, hi, this is Lydia Scarfa from uh, San Raffaele Hospital and Università Vita Salute San Raffaele, Milano, Italy. Uh, and today with me is uh, Otmar Al-Sawaf from uh, University of Cologne, Germany. And we are very excited to be here at the EHA Congress in Frankfurt and want to discuss uh, novel BTK inhibitors in the treatment of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So, Otman, let's start by discussing uh, about the current unmet uh, clinical need in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Yeah, thank you, Lydia. I think um, there are still a lot of uh, medical needs in CLL for sure, even though we had tremendous progress over the recent years, uh, especially in terms of frontline management of CLL and also maybe the second and third relapse, we can manage quite, quite not easily, but it is uh, relatively straightforward nowadays with, um, uh, in terms of our clinical routine. I think definitely one of the key challenges is certainly the double refractory setting, meaning patients who have relapsed and are really refractory to BTK inhibitors or covalent BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibitors. So these are still small groups of patients, but I think they are nevertheless very relevant because their number is increasing over time since patients are now starting to relapse after prior successful therapies. So I think this is one of the key challenges where we need more research and more development of, of uh, novel therapies. Um, and then maybe also um, open questions as to how to manage patients best after they had limited exposure to therapies. I think this is another open question. I totally agree with you and I think that actually as you uh, correctly pointed out, double refractory patients are nowadays a relevant uh, unmet clinical need, um, especially because for this category of patients we have very few uh, standard, uh, let's call them standard treatment options. Uh, so based on our recent experience, I was very excited to see uh, the results of the non-covalent BTK inhibitor that were uh, recently presented. Don't know if you have the chance to use uh, in your patient population peer-to-brutinib or other non-covalent BTK inhibitors and you, if you want to share with us your impression on them. So at our center we haven't had any um, uh, considerable experience with peer-to-brutinib as of yet. We've just started participating in peer-to-brutinib studies and uh, we are also preparing a large phase 3 study uh, with, with uh, other collaborators across Europe including the Italian CLL group um, to test peer-to-brutinib in the frontline setting as well in, in, a, in a certain way. But uh, beyond that, I haven't had any hands-on experience with Perto. And uh, I think nevertheless, the data that we are seeing now largely based on the phase one Bruin study, which is a very large phase one study, but nevertheless is at the moment more or less our exclusive data set for, for peer-to-brutinib data. And it has been quite uh, encouraging in terms of especially the efficacy data that they have reported bearing in mind that they have um, one of the largest cohorts of double refractory patients in, in their study. So um, that's why I think it is very encouraging to see that they see efficacy and the progression-free survival of more than one and a half years in these double refractory patients. 
So in your clinical practice, are you testing for BTK mutations? Because uh, as we are all aware, um, a variable proportion of patients, but let's say 60-80% of patients progressing on covalent BTK inhibitor um, are carrying BTK mutations in the CLL clone. So are you testing for it or do you think that in the next future we will use this test to guide treatment choice? Yeah, I think um, certainly it is an interesting uh, phenomenon that we see treatment-specific mutations that patients acquire only when they have been exposed to certain agents. Um, nevertheless, I think the clinical implications at the moment are fairly limited. So therefore, it's not really a part of our routine. We have a NGS panel that covers also BTK mutations and that we sometimes uh, um, apply, but not so much for clinical decision-making, but more in terms of understanding how the disease has evolved. So it's not part of our routine and we don't recommend also from our end when we get referrals to do this kind of test because ultimately if a patient has relapsed on a continuous BTK inhibitor, then the clinical decision-making is um, done irrespective of whether the patient has a mutation or not. Because if a patient, let's say, was on ibrutinib or acalabrutinib for four or five years and then has started developing and increasing lymphocytosis, new lymph nodes, and has clinical signs of a progression, whether or not the patient has a detectable mutation doesn't change the fact that we can't continue to treat um, with a covalent BTK inhibitor in that case because the patient is refractory. And therefore, it is an interesting tool to consider the evolution. But at the moment, in my view, it doesn't have immediate clinical implications. I don't know what's what your practice. Uh, I totally agree. We test only for research purposes, actually, in our uh, clinical practice. But what I found reassuring from the novel non-covalent BTK inhibitors is that they seem to work uh, in both uh, BTK-mutated and unmutated patients. So this is something we can use uh, uh, even though we identify the presence of, uh, of the mutations in, uh, in our patient population. So that, that's definitely something that is pointing out about the mechanism of resistance, I would suggest, especially because also with these novel non-covalent BTK inhibitors uh, and the updated results will be presented uh, at this meeting, um, BTK mutations have been identified in patients progressing on non-covalent BTK uh, inhibitors. So probably BTK is still key in the uh, disease-resistant uh, biology and it's, it still remains probably a, a suitable target for uh, treatment once a patient uh, develops mutations. Yeah, definitely. I think we, we see this uh, even before the non-covalent inhibitors were introduced that uh, CLL cells, even when they have mutations, remain addicted to BCR signaling, whether or not they have a BTK mutation or not, or whether, whether or not they have been really, uh, have become refractory to, to BTK inhibition. Um, I think what's interesting, and as you mentioned, there are interesting data that are being presented also at this meeting that really show that the pattern of mutations is different after non-covalent BTK inhibitors. So across all the covalent BTK inhibitors that we have with ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanobrutinib, we have a, a quite a robust data set nowadays from various studies um, demonstrating the mutational pattern that we see. And the majority of these mutations are gatekeeper mutations that occur on, the, on or around the BTK uh, inhibitor binding sites. And uh, in, with the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, there's a new pattern and phenomenon that we see where we observe that patients or CLL cells acquire kinase dead mutations that ultimately would allow for covalent BTK inhibitors to still bind to BTK, but the kinase itself is more 
more or less inactive and rather um, uh, scaffolding proteins that are recruited around BTK become much more relevant in terms of maintaining the signaling uh, in a, uh, the downstream signaling. So I think therefore these observations are very interesting because they also have implications towards sequencing of the treatments. I don't know, did you, uh, what are your thoughts on the order of covalent versus non-covalent inhibitors in, in future um, pathways? That's a great question actually because I, I mean nowadays we have only data with non-covalent BTK inhibitors after covalent BTK inhibitors and we know that they work so the response duration especially in uh, let's say heavily protected treated patients uh, is not uh, uh, endless, I would say, because it's one year and a half, almost two years. Um, I'm still trying to understand what is the best sequencing, but I, I think one other key point is about uh, tolerability of these uh, novel agents, because uh, BTK inhibition is a key target, and I think it has demonstrated to be very effective in CLL, but especially with the initial compounds, there were some tolerability issues and with the novel generation we are improving on tolerability I, I just say would you agree on that yeah definitely I think um, especially based on the head-to-head -head data that we have for a color and zanubutinib we seem to have at least for certain toxicities uh, relative risk reduction and um, that is uh, quite significant uh, in, in these studies so things especially like atrial fibrillation and cardiac arrhythmia are something that is quite common with ibrutinib and has become quite common over the years um, is something that is um, relatively less common with a color and zanubutinib. So I think in that sense, the next generation inhibitors um, have a toxicity advantage. It will be interesting to see how the non-covalent inhibitors, um, whether they can replicate this. There is an ongoing head-to-head -head study again for protobrutinib against ibrutinib, which will, I assume, show a somewhat similar pattern. Um, but again, it comes down also a little bit to um, how much this translates to other toxicities that we see. So we've seen, for instance, a distinct pattern between zanobrutinib and acalabrutinib when it comes to the incidence of bleeding events or hypertension, where we see less with acalabrutinib compared to ibrutinib, whereas zanobrutinib seems to have fairly similar um, uh, incidences of uh, um, hypertension and bleeding. So even within the next generation inhibitors, I think there's a distinct um, profile for each of those compounds. It will be interesting to see how protobrutinib will be in this regard. The Bruin data, again, phase one, but large cohort, is quite encouraging in that they have an extremely low incidence of atrial fibrillation, even though they have over 700 patients. On the other hand, they have a slightly younger patient population than what we have seen in Elevate TN, for instance, or in the Sequoia study for ZANU. Um, so, again, the key goal here, or the, the the benchmark has to be really a proper prospective randomized study to be really certain about the incidence rates. Until then, I think the next generation inhibitors are certainly at the moment um, the treatment of choice when it comes to choosing between BTK inhibitors. And then the distinction between the different agents in the next generation is something that we'll need to substantiate, I think, in the next coming years. Now I'm curious, you mentioned we do not know how to treat the patients who relapse after fixed duration regimen. Would you elaborate on that? Uh, how are you managing patients relapsing after, uh, let's say, venetoclax plus obinotuzumab being first line? What are the key factors you are taking into account uh, in order to decide the treatment yeah. choice? 
Yeah, I think the, the obvious thing, thing to do after a relapse is to switch to a different class of agents. So a patient has received venetoclax before, let's switch to BTK inhibitors if the patient is BTK inhibitor naive. So this is something that of course stands to reason and is one certainly viable option to do. But I think the key that we have here or the, the, the key opportunity that we have now that we have the ability to use limited duration treatment is to retreat patients. Uh, because we are see, we've seen in the relapse setting and also in the frontline setting, be it with venetoclax sobenutuzumab, but also with venetoclax plus ibrutinib, that when patients relapse after a fixed duration, they are not refractory. So they, none of them have uh, detectable BTK mutations or BCL2 mutations. So biologically, at least, uh, it would make sense that they would still respond to a re-exposure. And so I think, therefore, this is a new opportunity that we have to retreat the patients again with the same combination that we used before and also to give it in a limited duration way. Uh, and this is something that I think is now important to explore and especially to capture these precious patients that when they relapse after these long-term effective date, um, uh, regimens, that we try to put them into prospective randomized, uh, into prospective um, studies. So this is what we are at the moment uh, what are doing. So we try to put patients who relapse, for instance, after VEN-O into our REVEN-G study, where patients are then retreated again with the same regimen for one year, uh, and to see ultimately what's the efficacy and feasibility of a fixed duration retreatment um, for, for these patients. Uh, I totally agree. I think this is a, a great question we need to explore in the next future because, uh, I mean, of course, we would all go for fixed duration treatment because it's better tolerated, but it seems that some uh, disease features are actually associated with short-lasting responses with fixed duration treatment. So I think we need to identify patients who would need an intensified treatment and those in whom we can de-escalate uh, treatment, even shorten the duration of treatment uh, as we define nowadays, uh, because they have a very responsive disease and don't need to be exposed to prolonged uh, treatment schemes. So uh, I just say these are all relevant questions for the next future. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this. Uh, I'm happy to uh, enjoy the meeting. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.